0: Welcome to the Cake Adjacent Podcast, a once a week update on all things food, family, community, gardening, whatever. We call it Sidecar. If it has to do with rituals around food and holidays, making food or taking it places, or remembering just what we were eating during important times in our lives, we'll talk about it here. Hello my friends, welcome to another lovely weekend. It has been a very busy week for me. And as we got closer and closer to today, Saturday, morning, I was struggling to figure out what I wanted to talk about. As you know, I keep a running list of topics that I like to call my idea hopper, and I will often poll the friends of the podcast to see what you would like to hear me drone on about. But I've been feeling a lot of different ways lately for a lot of different reasons, because as you know, I am like an onion with my layers and my ability to make you cry. I had to go to the office several times this week, and every time I walked out the front door or I drove into the driveway, I was faced with the front garden, which has become completely overgrown. A jungle, really. And that has been really upsetting me because it has just reminded me of how much time I've lost in the last two years. Time lost with people I love. Time lost in the garden, which is an activity, an art form, really, that I love. Time lost reading for pleasure because I am so overwhelmed by all the things going on in the world that my brain is, a, is sodden like a sponge left in a sink full of dirty dishes. Time lost, just lost, because that's the way time goes, right? You can't go back and get it like when you forget your phone charging by the bed and you realize it when you're at the end of the block. Time lost. When we moved into this house with its big original picture window and the only original window left in the house, that front yard wasn't even a garden yet. It was just grass and some crappy lariopy from Home Depot and three or four of the smallest boxwoods I've ever seen. They were like teacup boxwoods. And so we set about to spruce it up. We planted tulips and daffodils and four kinds of roses and several irises and monarda, which is bee balm, and black raspberries and a dwarf peach tree and some mountain mint for the bees and hellenium, sneezeweed, and rudebeckia, black-eyed Susans, and echinacea, coneflower, rose campion from Ben's grandmother's house, which is now sold. And then I would fill in the rest with uh, uh, the rest of the front of that window with annuals for an English cottage garden look. Tall Farinacea, which is blue and white salvias, argeratum, and I do not even know what the common word for this is, Gladiolas and Dahlias, cleome, which is spider flower, Tithonia, which is Mexican sunflowers, and regular sunflowers, and China asters, and loads and loads and loads of zinnias in all shapes and sizes and colors because I love zinnias so much. I would say that next to Tithonia's, they're probably my favorite thing. And it took several years to make it really look nice and full, and it was always full of butterflies and bees and dragonflies and hummingbirds, so much so that even the folks at the Native Plant Society, even though my garden is not only natives, would come by for the annual butterfly count day and spend time in our yard counting all the flying creatures. But last year at this time, I was recovering from surgery and radiation, and I was not able to do all the things I like to do in the garden, and the result was run amok bindweed, which is the mid-Atlantic version of kudzu, I think, because it takes no time at all for all of the work of 10 years, both figuratively and literally, to be drowned out by crap. And every time I looked outside, it physically pained me to see how bad it was. All the beautiful roses that Ben has gifted me for our anniversaries and birthdays and Mother's Days from the pets and the irises that we carefully transferred from Ben's grandfather's house now sold and Ben's grandmother's house also sold and the irises and the asters we dug up from a rather famous Northern Virginia iris and daylily garden in Herndon that was being torn up and redeveloped for townhouses were completely covered and choked by bindweed and also invasive porcelain berry vine, which is pretty, but it will absolutely eat your house. I could not have even planted annuals if I wanted because the mat of bindweed was 6-12 to inches thick. I kid you not, I will put pictures up. In New England, a lot of these invasive vines like porcelain berry vine and autumn clematis die back enough every year because of the colder winters that it never really gets the kind of toehold it has down here. And while I never planted it here, the birds bring it from other people's gardens because the seeds are bomb-proof, porcelain berry vine, along with that A-hole bindweed and that pretty pink wild beech sweet pea, which I totally copped to planting using a cutting from my friend Brooke in Providence, have just created this mat of vines that have covered everything. The beech sweet pea is prolific, but the bees love it and it is super easy to pull out, so I don't mind it as much. But here in the Mid-Atlantic, Those vines just love it when you amend the awful clay soil with your carefully prepared compost of eggshells and apple peels and coffee grinds and shredded maple leaves and overripe banana and old avocado and slimy blueberries and lettuce that has gone over to the dark side. And all of those vines and weeds just love the hot, humid weather and the long growing season. And they will take any opportunity to grow up the backbone of whatever woody plant you have out there, like the climbing peace roses my dad's favorite that I planted 10 years ago after he died, with their yellow buds opening to the palest pink cream flower and such a delicate scent, or the rosa rugosa that I planted when my bestie Linnellan died three years ago this July, because it reminded me of the Mile Creek Beach Club where her mom would take us in the summer, and of Cliff Island, Maine, where her family had a house, or the latticework fan that I bought to train the Henryi I clematis, or clematis as it's called down here. That I brought from a clipping at my mom's house, also now sold. And the Jackmani clematis that I bought to be its companion. Tending a garden down here takes a lot of work because of these vines and the longer growing season. And the fact that the more you amend the soil and make it more healthy for your specimen plants, the the more those dog damn weeds take advantage. It's a constant struggle, and I feel like there's a whole metaphor in here for how we improve the soil, society, for fragile plants, marginalized members of society, just for some plants, racists or homophobes or all-around terrible people, to use it as an opportunity to tear it all down because they use the very nutrients and ladders and footholds that we put out for everybody. But that's probably a topic for another day. Anyway, After complaining and lamenting to a few of my besties this week about how upsetting it is to see all of that bindweed covering the roses, especially, and watching it get worse in this hot, steamy weather, I got up this morning at 6 a.m. when it was still in the 50s, and I put my hat on and I grabbed my gloves and my Felco pruners that I have had since I worked with my father on Fisher's Island. How is it possible that I have had the same hand pruners, not lost them, for 30 years? I should be sponsored by Felco. And I spent just an hour on this patch, which is about 10 square feet. It looks a lot better already. I feel a lot better, although I definitely used up my energy for the day. I uncovered all of the piece rose very carefully, trying not to break it. The new growth under the vine, so delicate and soft and not hardened off yet, almost a vine itself. Next year, it will be considered old wood, and it will be stronger and able to withstand bindweed if I'm not able to stay on top of it. But this year, the bindweed would have suffocated it. If enough of the hardwood of the new wood succumbed, the entire plant would have died. I also cut back the I clematis, which was done blooming for now and it had become unruly. It is a sturdy plant, though. It will grow back. And I discovered that I had planted three black raspberry plants two years ago, and there are enough black raspberries on those plants that I will probably get a pint at least when they ripen, if the birds don't get them first. I need to give those plants the support they need to thrive though, so I'll ask Ben to help me build something to keep their canes upright, moving in the right direction, so that even if the bindweed sneaks up on them, their support systems will keep them strong. The roses that Ben bought me for our anniversaries, those things are beasts. They are absolutely a match for bindweed. I pulled vines out of those, and they were fine. I yanked vines, and I went in there with my super sharp Felco pruners, and you'd never know it. They'll love having a little bit of extra growing room that the bindweed and the sweet pea had taken up, but they would have duked it out with those mother fluffers all summer if they had to. Those drift roses ever glossy with green leaves, tiny ones the size of peanut M&Ms from early March until almost Christmas, and they bloom almost that entire time. They don't grow tall, but they spread and they work hard at doing their part at choking out the invasive weeds that threaten to suffocate everything. The ones we have are called peach. They have yellow and pink buds on clusters opening to pink, orange, cream, and creamy yellow flowers as they age, and then they just keep going. Our 16th wedding anniversary is the 10th of this month. We don't usually make a big deal of it. We try to celebrate every day that we found each other. And while we are both far from perfect people, we are perfect together. The interwebs tells me it's the wax anniversary. And I honestly do not even know what to say about that. I think we'll celebrate with something delicious for dinner. And I'm now taking suggestions because I honestly cannot tell you what we had for food at the wedding and cake. Which would be lemon and raspberry, because I do remember the wedding cake. I always can remember cake, and maybe try making French 75s again, and maybe we'll buy another one or two drift roses for the garden, so we continue to beat back the ever-growing, ever creeping evil of that soul and garden suffocating bindweed. Okay, how about this week's food holidays? I feel like I need transition sounds like Gen G has whoosh! Okay, so I mentioned last week that today is a big day. Applesauce cake. Cheese day. Frozen yogurt day. And cognac day. I feel like applesauce cake is a thing that you don't see all that often anymore, although applesauce as an ingredient is definitely a thing I see, and I don't have strong feelings about applesauce and cake the way I do about saltines and baked goods. I also fussed last week about how tomorrow is gingerbread day, which is totally not a thing in this hemisphere, uh, but maybe in Australia and New Zealand. I do love gingerbread though, and I'm not opposed to it any time of the year, but as a dessert in June, not when there are strawberries and blueberries and raspberries and all things lemon. No. Now, Monday, according to my calendar, is national day. Yes, that's all it says. So, I'm going to call in Audible and say you can make it whatever holiday you want. I would love to know what national holiday you are declaring. Without putting too much effort or thought into it, I'm going to go with mm, National Cheesecake Brownie Day with nuts. Who's with me? Tuesday is National Chocolate Ice Cream Day. And here's a little secret about me Ice cream, uh, chocolate ice cream is not one of my favorites. I mean, it's fine. But I like it as a bit player in a bigger ice cream program. So like Neapolitan, which is vanilla chocolate strawberry, or a black and white shake, which is a vanilla shake with chocolate sauce. I cannot remember a time in my entire life where I have willingly eaten a bowl or a cone of chocolate ice cream by itself. Wednesday is one of my favorite days of the year. It is Jelly-Filled Donut Day. And as I mentioned last week, when Friday was Donut Day, I truly believe we should celebrate donuts every week. There's a donut place here that I love because their donuts are pretty normal. That is no stunt donuts. I am not a fan of stunt donuts called Texas Donuts. And they make these empty donuts and then they fill them to order. And the filling is raspberry or strawberry jelly, lemon curd, or Bavarian cream. And the empty donuts are either glazed or chocolate frosted. And they are delish. Thursday is strawberry rhubarb pie day, and as much as I love strawberry strawberry rhubarb jam and other things made with the combination of strawberry sweet and rhubarb, rather sour, I don't love a whole pie of it unless it is liberally covered in vanilla ice cream or frozen custard. Friday is a big day, aside from it being my wedding anniversary. It is Herbs and Spice Day, which I guess if you are a generic white person, then you only celebrate that once a year. But even I, with my Irish and English heritage, use herbs and spices in my food more than one day a year. And I suspect that you do too. It is also National Iced Tea Day. And I'm going to confess something to you here, and perhaps it's something you can help me out with. I love iced tea. I love iced black tea and I love iced green tea, both on the sweet side versus unsweetened. But I have never in my adult life, been able to make my own iced tea that wasn't the most bitter concoction that ended up being poured out into the compost pile. So I end up buying iced tea, which seems like such an extravagance. I mean, I make hot tea every day, sometimes two or three times a day, and I love it. What is it about icing it that makes it so undrinkable? The tea that I end up buying is tazo tea in the glass jars, and my favorite is the iced black peach and the iced green mint, but man, that stuff is expensive. And I have both of those flavored tea bags from Tazo nonetheless. So I feel like I should be able to make iced tea. So what am I doing wrong? It is also black cow day. And here I was thinking that black cow was the same thing that um, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, which is a black and white shake, a vanilla milkshake with chocolate sauce. But I am absolutely not correct. A black cow is actually an ice cream float made with chocolate ice cream and either Coke or root beer, and I honestly don't think I would like that very much. Saturday is National German Chocolate Cake Day, and even though I love all the parts, I do not like the sum of this cake. It is just too much. And just a heads up, for Monday, June 12th, it is Peanut Butter Cookie Day, which should be a day off for everyone to celebrate because I love peanut butter cookies. And speaking of cookies, where's my sound effect noise? Whoosh! A new segment on Sidecar, and that is Amy Roan, cookie correspondent. Amy is one of our long-time listeners, and every week she gets the featured cookies at Crumble and then gives me a quick review, so we'll have to work out the timing here because these are actually last week's cookies. But here's her report. I got lemon crinkles, walnut fudge brownie, and pink donut at Crumble. The lemon needed more lemon. I want to feel like a lemon has punched me in the face. The fudge brownie tasted like a brownie. It wasn't bad, but I'd rather have a brownie. And the pink donut tasted just like sugar cookie with glaze. Kind of boring. It needed a pinch of nutmeg to give it the hint of donut. Thank you for your report, Amy. If you would like to become a cookie or cupcake or anything else correspondent, all you need to do is send me a report on something on the regular and I'll include it. Okay, a reminder that if you'd like to support the podcast, there are several ways you can do it. Either supporting it via Spotify or Patreon or Coffee, also by sharing and rating it so it moves up the podcast rankings and it is recommended to more people. I love to hear what you're eating, and if you send me a recipe either by Twitter or email or to my post office box, I will try to make it. And don't forget... That I also have a completely serious yet totally irreverent podcast with GR Mom, also known as Jen Golbeck, called the Agenda with a J podcast, which is now available on all the platforms. And we actually talk about food a fair amount there, too. Spoiler alert, we are looking working on an entire potato episode. I know, right? Until next week, support your local farmer's markets and farm stands. They grow healthy food for all of us and are some of the last natural-ish places in sprawling suburbs for some of us. You don't need to disinfect your produce, just rinse it in water. And definitely do not refrigerate your tomatoes. See you next week.